Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we're going to be chatting uh, with the lovely Kat Henstridge uh, who's also known as Kat the Vet in her online life. We will be talking about her life as a first opinion veterinary practitioner and small animal practitioner but actually also about other elements to her veterinary career which uh, involve um, appearing on TV every now and again uh, and also uh, social media and actually although social media has a very positive impact in Kat's life uh, there can be some darker sides and we'll delve into that a little bit today. In our clinical segment we're going to continue our discussion regarding hypothyroidism. Today we're going to talk about the diagnosis of this potentially challenging condition. Okay, so um, thanks so much Kat for joining us uh, today. We're really excited um, that you're here. Um, I think that as always, it's helpful for us just to start by, um, if if it's okay, you introducing yourself um, and just telling us a little bit about you and your uh, veterinary background, if that's okay. Of course. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for having me. My name's Kat. I am a small animal vet in first opinion clinical practice. I work two days a week and uh, because I'm a parent, so I've got three small children as well. And once you have once you're a parent, you can work part time and nobody judges. So it's lovely. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, it's true. It's, it's not necessarily that I'm not doing anything on my days off, but it is nice to have them. Um, but I am also known as Cat the Vet, and that's why I'm here, and that's why you reached out. So I have social media pages and platforms, and have had quite a few years now where I talk about being a vet and animal welfare and things that interest me and things that I think that pet owners should know. Okay. So there's, so there's lots there. I wanted to actually, it's interesting you said about, you know, being a parent and no one sort of judges you for wanting to be part-time, which I think is, that sounds fine to me and neither we, we should be. But I, I just wonder, there was an interesting thing that um, I think vet mums had, had had sort of a discussion at London Vet Show actually about part-time and what that really means. And I'm, I suppose one of the points was, is it, is it really part-time? Cause you're really a full-time something. You're just a part-time of lots of different bits of things, but it's still, I, I don't think it's any easier. And certainly it's, it still sounds jam-packed for you. Yes. That's a really good point in that, you know, part-time in veterinary is not necessarily what everybody else thinks is of as no. part-time. So I do two long vet days a week. So I work 20 hours a week. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right we're not just I did a talk at London Vet Show this year and one of the points that I really wanted to get across was we're not just one thing we're not you're not just a vet you're not just a mum you're not you're also a sister and an aunt and a and a daughter and a friend and so you have all these calls on your time and you know all these responsibilities and all those relationships take time to invest in Mm. don't they um so yeah life doesn't stop on your days off as a as a parent um and I spend an awful lot of my time running about doing you know boring washing and things like that but also because of Cat the Vet at least one or two of those days a week is taken up by the work that that entails um some of which is paid which is nice but a lot of which isn't so for me it's it's basically a hobby when I did this talk for London Vet Show I sort of thought, oh, I should probably write down my hobbies that take my time up as well. And I basically came up empty handed because I don't have any. Listen, I hear you because I mean, I, you know, I went for, you know, a job interview 
at some stage recently and that was one of the questions awkward so what do you do outside of whatever this is you know being what you do and I was like um give me a minute hold on definitely I'm really I'm a very interesting person I definitely do stuff wait oh no oh no I don't okay (laughs) I record a podcast what's that about Mm, veterinary okay so basically nothing okay fine so actually I think that's really funny that we try you know we're we're these really dynamic people you know who have got great skill sets and all that kind of stuff but actually anything that might have been external kind of I felt kind of just dwindled dwindles away slowly anyway so you it's interesting so I I I, what I what's interesting when you talk about Cat the Vet you talk about Cat the Vet as if that's like another person but you are so you are Cat the Vet but you were like when I do when I do Cat the Vet like it's just you know like she's someone else like an alter ego (laughs) is she an alter ego uh she's not an alter ego she's very much part of me um but I have always felt much more comfortable keeping my real life cat the vet and my online cat the vet as two very separate entities so I have never discussed on my social media pages where I work nothing that I talk about on there is is anything like in real time like I know a lot of vets online will be like oh look at this kitten that I saw today or you know if the cat or the if the patient has a social media profile they'll tag them or sometimes they'll stand in front of the clinic's branding and say oh I work here I've always felt and that's fine if that's what they want to do but I have always felt much more comfortable keeping the two worlds very separate so I don't give myself personally to cat the vet a because you know that's not why I'm doing it I'm not doing this for people so people in real life know who I am you know being sort of famous quote unquote was not the driver and also the other reason is I do, I feel very strongly about some subjects in the veterinary realm and they are potentially controversial, not because the things that I say are wrong, but because people disagree with me. And, you know, I, I have come under quite sustained um, negative commentary and, and, you know, trolling for want of a better word. Um, and I, so therefore I feel much more comfortable ha- not having that spill into my real life and for it to stay online. And that those experiences are genuinely unpleasant you know when whether they're you know real or not you know these people it's still very uh, not a nice thing to have to go through when you make a statement like raw food contains bacteria Uh, maybe we shouldn't send death threats to APHA for euthanizing a TB ridden alpaca Um, but people vehemently disagree with some of the things I say Um, and I prefer to keep so therefore I prefer to keep my who I actually am ever so slightly out of the way. So those two worlds are a bit separate. That, and that sounds sensible. But then I suppose my, my, my gut instinct then says to me, well, why bother? Well, that's true. But I bother because I think it's so, I think it's so important. Why, why bother saying those, those things that cause negative commentary if it is quite an unpleasant thing when it happens? because I think it's really important that those messages are out there and because my pages and my passion have always been directed at your ordinary standard pet owner I've never set myself up I'm not a specialist I don't educate fellow vets online I think some vets are absolutely amazing at that aren't they you know they share clinical cases and do like little bits of CPD and that sort of thing 
my pages are aimed at ordinary pet owners and I think there are some things that they really need to know and the vet profession wants them to know um, and you know when it comes to alternative things like homeopathy or raw diets or you know anti-vaccine messaging or anything like that those messages have got the front page you know they've got the march on on conventional medicine and I think a lot of ordinary pet owners have a lot of angst because the vet says one thing but then the internet says the other and what is actually the right thing to do and you know I think there's a lot of shaming if people feed just ordinary dog food and that kind of thing even though people do feed ordinary dog food because it's so easy they feel guilty about it because there's so much negative messaging online but I think it's really really important that the information about good quality evidence-based science and veterinary medicine are out there and that is fundamental to what I believe and so every so often I put the head above the parapet and say it and I know I know the backlash comes but I and it's not very nice but I believe so passionately in what I'm saying that I and also I despise bullies so you know I won't be bullied Mm. so from my perception of what you do then I would say that that that's what I thought you were trying to do as in I think you you deliver that well because ultimately you are just sending out you know it it really is because it's a huge amount like you say there's so many things where first of all there's just misinformation and actually your job is to educate you know based on good stuff you know and and I think my my sort of just as from one human being to another human being and maybe you can maybe give us a bit more of an example of you know this the negative impact of this but but I would say that it's fine for people to disagree, right? So we're, we're, everyone's got different opinions and all that kind of stuff. But there's clearly a line that is crossed and clearly you have been subjected to the crossed line as far as it's one thing disagreeing, but it's it's another thing taking it to the next level and actually being abusive towards another human being um, through the power of the keyboard behind a screen. You know what I mean? And I think no one deserves that, do they? I think, I don't think so. You know, I, I think that's horrid. No, I don't think so either. Um, but some people do. I think that, 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 well, the barrier of the internet, you know, like you say, you people say some awful things behind a keyboard that they would never, ever say in real life. Um, but that's a problem. You know, that's just the internet in a nutshell, <laughs> essentially, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so yeah. You're never going to stop that. Um, and yes, like, it's very rare that I every so often I will delete comments on my page or I will hide them. But a lot of the time I will sort of leave a lot of the ones that disagree with me up there because I think it is really important to have that debate. And I don't, like like you say, I'm okay with other people having different opinions. My driver is, well, what's actually the fact here and what's the information or the balance of information that needs to be, that needs to be out there. Um, and, you know, there are these flashpoints that I just know are coming when I talk about raw or imported dogs or, you know, recently I made a public statement about Geronimo the alpaca, who was that one who had the TB. And that was the most, by far the worst um, pushback I had ever received on the Internet. And I, I really hadn't realised prior to that how much of an uh, how much of an like a of a sort of serious animal rights movement was in 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 that particular situation um and you know but a lot of people have from from geronimo like 
the RCVS received death threats, APHA received death threats, like the whole situation around that particular scenario was beyond ridiculous. And that and that really affected you, I mean, genuinely. It was, it was absolutely horrid for a while because, like I say, I make this big effort to separate Cat the Vet from the real Cat the Vet because I don't want one, one to spill over into the other. And that one did. My, you know, they found out who I was and where I worked and my practice received 20 or 30 emails telling them that I should be stacked. Oh, God. And I was a terrible vet and I was going to damage their damage their business, you know, because I'm just an employee. I'm not, I don't own my own practice or anything like that. Um, so that was a, gen, a really, really, really awful, situ- horrible situation to have to go through. All for the sake of me saying this animal has tested positive for TB. The law has been followed and, you know, probably sending sending credible death threats to the vets who had to carry out the procedure is not the right thing to do so I didn't feel what I said was at all unreasonable and luckily my boss agreed with me and it has all died down now if they listen to this podcast it'll probably come crawling back out of the woodwork uh but yeah there are some there are definitely some negative aspects to well there are negative aspects to having opinions online aren't there you know that's again that's the nature of the internet um and it I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of super crusader but i do think it's really i just think it's really important that somebody says these things and you seem to be you're so you to me when i speak to you and we've spoken previous to this about and you seem very sort of you're, you're very clear about what your objectives are and you seem very sort of i don't know very yeah very clear on what what you're trying to achieve but it's very clear also that that when this sort of stuff starts to happen regardless of how resilient and strong you are as an individual there's only so much i mean that's just crap and you're going to be affected by that you know because we're human beings and actually it, you know we we can't withstand all of that sort of stuff what what can i ask in those kind of how when you're going through that sort of stuff and let's say you know it doesn't matter when you when you're kind of you you're you're going through a particularly sort of you know real kind of backlash let's say with that sort of stuff does does it make you do you ever think well actually I don't think I'm not going to do this anymore then this is not this is not worth this or how do you feel in that moment as far as that I mean clearly you what you're you're continuing and you know which is great but do you ever do you ever then think actually hold on a minute this is too much no, that thought has never actually entered my head. Good, okay. But <laughs> but uh, it does make you back off a bit for a while and think, right, well, I'm not going to say anything even remotely interesting for a while because I just don't need, you know, you get that anxiety buildup where you just think I'm not going to, I'm not going to poke any bears. I'm not going to say anything because I just don't want any negative commentary. You know, I shall just post some pictures of some cute kittens and do what everybody else does. But I think there's a real... You know, I think there is a common thread here for a lot of people in that um, when you receive anything negative online, especially if it's from a lot of people, it's it's real that the stress and the anxiety and the self-doubt that creeps in, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I am a terrible person. Maybe I am wrong. Maybe I, you know, maybe I don't deserve to be here. it's a very real thought process. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that, you know, especially if they're business owners for vets of, you know, you know, social media pylons happen, don't they? And trial by social media for vets, businesses and individuals occurs. And it is very distressing and 
you know you just think you know somebody might say well how why is it impacting you this this is just on the computer don't look don't don't switch on don't read it um but you do and it's obsessive you're like I want to know what people are saying about me so because I I know I'm not having them say things I don't know about and so yeah I think a lot of a lot of vet professionals probably can relate um and you know and and everybody anyone who has uh, comes under that kind of pressure has my utmost sympathy and understanding because it's horrible and it's real I can't claim to understand what that particular thing feels like but equally you know when you're I every time I put out a clinical post and I do put out clinical material because that's kind of my jam whatever and if someone the other day questioned something I said which is fine you're allowed to do that I don't know everything I never said I did but I'm like oh my god I'm never doing this again why you know and it's so this is such a silly thing compared to what you're talking about I'm not trying to it's a really bad I don't really think I'm trying to like um do a comparison but equally I think anything you put out is going to be you know I, I don't know there's always going to be that kind of we say imposter or whatever the worry the and, and and the fraudulent feeling I think that's real for a lot of different sort of scenarios yeah whenever, yeah absolutely whenever you put anything out online um, especially if you're doing it from a, in a professional capacity there's always going to be positive and negative commentary and you have to be sort of ready and prepared for that and like you say people can disagree or say oh that's not how I would interpret that blood result or do that procedure um you know and you just think oh it's for sometimes you just think that's you know if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all but I don't know I think whenever you put something out online you do ever so slightly become public property so people kind of feel like they can and can comment um and you're right there is it is there's a fine line as to what is and what isn't acceptable but also you have to develop a bit of a thick skin and try not to take things too personally because it's always going to happen and and if that's not but you know like you say no one's making us do this no one's no one's forcing us and we can back point. but the drive to do it is always and should always be stronger than any negative um negative commentary we get and I love that you know and I think the thick skin thing is interesting I there's another vet who has a very big social media following who put something online a couple of weeks ago and there was a negative comment or something and I was immediately on the phone to him being like oh my god have you seen I'm so sorry let me what can I do to help like this is and he's like I mean whatever <laughs> like, shake it off like I mean thanks for looking out for me but actually I'm okay so and I think you know so you know sorry and that's sorry. what makes the difference is people supporting you so that that even though he shrugged that off it like from my perspective that would have meant a lot because you really really it really makes a difference if people are supportive so what makes the difference for me is when I post something that you know gets gets a negative commentary well I've raw fed my dogs for 20 years and I've never had diarrhea or whatever do you know what I mean for for people to then come on and say well actually you know I agree or I've seen this or you know cat's right um it's massively massively it means such a lot because you know the other thing that drives me is this profession and it sounds a bit cheesy but you know vets vets in the profession are amazing and what we do is incredible and we don't celebrate that enough and I have doubts about myself all the time but you know we are brilliant and we do care hugely and 
we need some positivity about us in the public space. And that's one of the other reasons why that, that was one of the founding reasons why I started what I do, because I didn't think there was enough of it. Um, and so when the profession in turn gives their support back and, you know, helps me through the, some of those difficult times, it it genuinely means the world. So, you, yeah, you reaching out was the, a lovely thing for you to do. Well, and that's really interesting, actually, you say that. And I'll, so I'll continue to annoy people if I see it. But I think I actually saw there was multiple people that jumped to his rescue. And then actually, you know, one of those people that messaged me going, have you seen this? You need to go. Actually, I felt immediately this kind of rally of support, you know, from like this little community of people, half of whom I've never met, you know, the, the Vetstagram or whatever people that I, I feel like I've met them. And actually, I've never met them. And it's totally bizarre, you know, and, and it's true. You know, it really is. That is the most bizarre thing. Anyway, I'm sure you experienced, you know, experienced that um I, I wanted to ask I think um well I, I've got loads of questions sorry I need to I should be writing these down um so as as far as all the kind of things that you sort of speak about and 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 and, and are passionate about what would you say as far as kind of the messages or campaigns that you've kind of put out there what would you say that is the one that is most is closest to your heart is the one that you feel most passionate about the thing that drives me the most and I think is the most important is combating misinformation and, you know, and being able to be the vet in the public space who is able to say, you know, what the science and evidence base is for feeding your pet or vaccinating your pet or buying your pet or choosing a breeder or whatever the breed is and that sort of thing. And I do that on a reasonably regular basis, um, I think, uh, in amongst lots of other things. But my interests and what interests me sort of it does range far and wide. I'm not just a vet who talks about behavior or just a vet who talks about nutrition or, you know, I sort of, I talk about what interests me and what interests me within the animal and veterinary space is kind of everything. No, yeah, fair enough. Um, so as far as kind of, you know, you, you, you set up these social media pages and, and you've talked about kind of, the, I suppose, the, the reasons for that. Obviously that has, um, there have been other, I'm sure opportunities for you that have come off the back of that. Um, and um, I um, will often be, you know, cooking dinner and suddenly your um, dulcet tones are coming out of my television, um, which is which is weird now that we've spoken to each other. I'm going to be like, I know her, sort of. <laughs> so Because my kids love um, that show. So I don't, I, I mean, I, I hope it's okay to ask. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your television uh, stardom. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay. yes. So my television stardom, it's another string to my bow. That's what I like to think. And I certainly didn't send set out in my career to, to be a famous vet or a, or, or a vet on the television. Um, but because of the stuff I do online and like the social media and things like that, I'm kind of already quite comfortable being in, you know, the public arena and, you know, giving my opinions and <laughs> you know, being able to sort of stand in front of, cameras or whatever and say things it, it was a natural progression however I wasn't headhunted or people didn't come to me and go oh you're Cat the Vet can you come on the telly please they did <laughs> did they not <laughs> how disappointing <laughs> terribly rude they just that for that show so what you're talking about is the pets factor which is um on children's bbc currently no more series are in the offing but it is available on the iplayer they advertise in the vet times you know there's little columns that nobody reads down the sides with you know information about 
a, a new territory manager being employed by some company or another. It was in there. And um, I thought, well, that sounds like fun. So so I applied. So I, I just applied like everybody else. Like I can't, you know, I can't go, oh gosh, it was just, it was just one of those things that came out of nowhere, wasn't it? Marvelous. Like I literally applied for the job. Like I wanted to do it and I got it. Um, but it has been, yeah, that, that was a really fun and interesting experience. So yeah, it's, uh, and, and lots and lots of people tell me that their kids watch it, so it's great. And it, you seem like a nice bunch like the 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 collective in your different colored scrubs like I just (laughs) I mean I just I just think it looks like you know I don't know it's it's well put together as far as what you're trying to you know it it really does portray all of you I think in a really nice light and and just a really nice it seems to me like a really nice bunch of people so I enjoy it thank you glad to know it's on the iPlayer that was a brilliant little plug Uh, (laughs) so we can continue to watch um no so thank you for that as far as um what's next one of the questions we ask you know what do you want to be when you grow up and I suppose kind of what's next for you so where does you know where does Cat the Vet go from here what's what do we do next with all of this well that's a really interesting question that you ask because I I think about this myself sometimes is shall I just keep banging on about things on Facebook forever and I suppose one thing is well I, I could you know social media is I don't think it's going anywhere and so I will but uh what else you know where could it go I mean, I'd love to do more television work if the opportunity ever arose, but it arises, you know, very rarely. And um, uh, but I keep my I keep my eyes open. I think, well, it's a it's a skill that I have. I mean, it's not a massively well paying job. You know, people think that, you know, you must be on the telly. They must pay you an absolute fortune. And they really don't. For the first series of The Pets Factor, they didn't pay us at all. Um, we got we were busy in negotiations and they were sort of saying when they were going to come film and what they were going to do and at the very literally at the very end of the conversation they said have you got any questions and I said yes how much are you going to pay us and they went oh nothing (laughs) I love that because they're because they're filming you at work right so technically you're getting paid mm, that was okay. absolutely their reason they were like well it's an ob doc which is television talk for observational documentary which means that you do you and they just point a camera at it while you're doing it it's an ob doc so I mean really you're just you know we're not we're not interfering this is and then they said oh and we need you to come and do some filming days to do the links in between and obviously then there's going to be some voiceover and they paid us for none of it and then um, and so but we were too far down the line by then. And all of us, all there was four of us at the time, had this sort of conversation, but we'd all gone, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds completely reasonable. Um But I think it's I can just I can imagine because I think you just sitting there thinking, oh no, well, I'm actually, oh no, I meant to feel really lucky to be here. So actually I'm just gonna be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But I think you know, but but that's all I think we're we're actually for for a profession that's accused of being half the time very sort of money orientated and money grabbing actually um I think the ironic thing is the the vets and nurses on the front line are far from that and actually talking about money is still very awkward for many of us and actually do you know what I mean and I would just like okay then I'll just yep you just point the camera at me and I'll just turn up hugely we're terrible at, at getting paid you know and asking for payments for our professional time massively you know when it comes to speaking and speaking engagements or you know and anything it's it you know more often than not you'll find a vet professional you know there's that meme isn't there where there's that one guy looking a bit confused going you guys are getting paid for this and that's like mm-hmm. literally what this profession is 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 like so I think we do need to be a bit more 
we're so we're so it's you know money just runs through and it's such I think it's such a big anxiety for all of us because we come under such a lot of pressure and you know you're we're so expensive and you know so when it comes to money I think all of us hate hate talking about it and go, no, absolutely fine. I'll, no it's absolutely fine of course I'll come for free I'll pay for my own train fare. I'll yeah. just turn up and- let me give you some money um <laughs> so <laughs> I'll pay you um we were talking before about the negativity that you've experienced uh, from uh, the the public and in inverted commas from the, the some of the commentary that you have been involved with. I was interested. Um, you made a comment again, at which I wholeheartedly agree with about the kindness and and actually how lucky we are to be. I think in a profession full of just amazing people, and that is, you know. I had my last day of of a clinical job yesterday, actually. And um, as I blubbered my way through some sort of, you know, ridiculous attempt at a goodbye speech. I mean, I literally couldn't speak. It was embarrassing. I was ugly crying. And all I really wanted to say was, you know, regardless of the trauma of the last two years in clinical practice, I'm really grateful for all of you. Like you are the thing that I will miss. You are the saving grace for me of, of actually any hard times that we have in this profession and that I truly believe that's true as far as kind of some of the social media commentary though do you have you ever been involved with negativity on the inside do you sometimes feel that we get it wrong as a community online too are we sometimes maybe not that great to each other when it comes to these um discussions on a kind of virtual platform you know, the veterinary profession is, you know, full of amazing people. And, you know, like you say, our colleagues and our friends in real life are fabulous. But we are no different in the online space to any other people or any other profession. And there is always going to be some robust discussions. And what 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 is one person's firm but fair comment is somebody else's bullying and harassment. And there is a lot of chatter, isn't there, on in some of the particularly the Facebook groups about what constitutes, you know, robust discussion and what crosses the line um yeah it's just it's just so subjective but I think overall I do not think we have a problem with bullying or being unkind or anything you know in in that online space that's not to say that it doesn't occur and you know if people are feeling beleaguered it is important to speak up or have a word with admin or you know maybe leave the group for a while or something like that and you do need a bit of a thick skin online because you know context and subtlety is often lost it can be it can be quite hard you do have to put your big girl pants on like every so often I want to ask a clinical question um and there's always that little voice in the back of my head maybe everybody else knows this maybe this is a really stupid question maybe if I say this I'll get 20 answers in 20 seconds all telling me what an idiot I am you know so that kind of thing is really difficult isn't it because but uh I do put my big girl pants on and I do ask clinical questions and in the main the positivity and the help and insights that I receive for questions is amazing and that's exactly the same as you know I don't want to don't want to sound all like doom and gloom about my social media adventure and life and and post in the main it is humongously positive and affirming and you know the the feedback that I get uh is amazing um the problem is, is we have the tendency to really dwell on the negative, don't we? Whether it's in the real life. Or the life. I'm not an admin of any Facebook groups, but I am in a couple of messaging groups with people who are. And I know how hard they work behind the scenes to keep it and to, and to sort of hash out people's concerns. Um, and one place is a bit too 
robust for you, then that's cool. That's maybe that's not the group for you, but there are others out there that are. We ultimately choose, you know, we make, we, we can choose all of this and we can choose to delete. We can choose to take the app away, you know, and that sometimes is what you need to do. Like same as we can choose to leave a job at any given second, if we want to, you know. The, the, the narrative can like develop a, a life of its own. You know, so this narrative of, oh, you know, veterinary Facebook groups are really horrible and everybody's really mean. And, you know, I've left because I couldn't cope with it can become a bit like of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, when actually you go in there and you read the stuff and you're like, oh, it's, it's really not actually that that bad. But, you know, it's that pervading negativity that we I think we're all in all walks of life and everything just very vulnerable to, to falling into that trap. Um, but you know, you do you and what makes you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy or it stresses you out, then remove it from your life because it doesn't have to be there. And there are other places you can reach out for help and guidance. Yeah, you do you. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Let's do that. You do that. <laughs> so um through yeah, so hugely positive as you said, and let's let's dwell on that. So through your cat the vet you have almost certainly inspired not only six and seven-year-olds, but people who are older too. <laughs> so um, you will have, I'm sure, uh, in many ways inspired different people to maybe even become vets, who knows. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, uh, who inspires you? I am inspired by lots of people. Lots of people inspire me. So in my personal life, um, I'm inspired by and and do you know what mainly who mainly inspires me is is other women. Like I think women are like I, I get a lot of my inspiration and my admiration from from women because I think I don't know, I feel a sort of kinship. And there are some amazing women doing some amazing things in this profession. Like in my family, I come from a family of, I come from a very medical background, uh, loads of doctors. I decided at a very early age, I liked animals better than people, much to my mother's disappointment, because she's a GP. Um, so I find my own family very inspiring, particularly my mum, who uh, still works full-time as a GP now, years down the line. Um, <clears throat> in the vet world, I think there's some amazing, inspiring women out there doing some fantastic stuff. And I could probably sit here all day and list them. I think Sarah Heath, the behaviorist, is phenomenal. I adore Sarah Caney and the work that she does for, for cats. Oh, yeah. Danielle Gunmore and yeah. uh, Marge Chandler, the nutritionist. I follow and hang on her every word because she mm. is fantastically, uh, fantastically mm. knowledgeable in her field. Louise O'Dwyer, who we very sadly lost to the profession a couple of years ago, was a remarkable woman who I, you know, met, was lucky enough to meet a couple of times and thought she was, you know, what she did for the vet nursing profession was phenomenal. Uh, just, just, yeah, there's, and I could probably sit here all day and list loads of women um, mm. and all inspire me in different ways to, to, you know, to keep learning and to keep speaking and talking and, you know, balancing life, the universe and everything. Amazing list of, of people. And actually, Louise is a very common answer in, a, in the lovely way. You know, she particularly, you know, with the nurses that come on and speak, you know, she and she is incredible. And actually, and I, again, was very lucky to meet her. And and and, and I think what I loved about her as well is that she was an, what an amazing personality, what an amazing character apart from being just incredibly knowledgeable, just, just, a, just brilliant, you know, all round, you know, and I just, yeah. So that, yeah, that's, yeah. Good answers. Um, 
so you have obviously had this very sort of amazingly varied uh, career which I think is the way to do it actually honestly like I think you know Ebony from Vet, Vet Stego Diversify talked about you know these squiggly lines like I think we're we're so uh, trained to have this very linear career which goes from one to the next to the next to the next and actually for me personally I've very quickly not very quickly taken me a long time to realize that's actually not the only way and you can do things in a slightly more um all over the place fashion um so how reflecting on all of that if you were to go back which vet school did you go to again bristol bristol I'll try not to hold that against you um <laughs> um if you were to go back to that point where you're making that decision against your mother's will to, to apply to vet school would you still make that decision would you still do that yes I would. And I think that we all get to this point in our career, don't we? At some point or other where you're like, did I make the right decision? Because there are some days in vet med that are the worst days of your life and you just question everything and your ability. And, you know, why am I, why am I here? Why am I doing this? This is horrendous. It's all my fault. Um, (laughs) We all, I think we all have those days, but the one thing that has kept well, not the one thing that's kept me going, but the one thing that I absolutely know is if I went back and talked to my 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 16-year-old self, there's not a, there's no way I would persuade her to do anything different. This job was my dream. And it still is. I think I'm very fortunate to be in a job that I, I genuinely do love 90% of the time. And it has been very challenging over the last couple of years. And But, you know, throughout your entire career, there's real ups and downs. Um, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed her mind. And yes, I, I, you know, Ebony is someone else who probably should have been on my list of inspiring women. She is completely remarkable and has opened up a whole, oh, and Daniela Dos Santos, did an amazing mm-hmm. job for us over the over the mm-hmm. uh, over the pandemic, but yeah, th- this concept of this portfolio career, uh, I did. I, I don't. It's interesting that you think that I've had a varied career because I don't think I have. I have spent the last nineteen years in small animal first opinion practice. I haven't done anything or gone anywhere else. I've created this sort of second life for myself. But like we said at the beginning, it's it does it is income generating now and I do earn money from from you know brand deals and and working with companies and that kind of thing but actually it's always just been a hobby and really it's not that very far removed you know and Ebony's great and you know all of these concepts of this squiggly career but I actually think for most of us we start we carry on and we finish in clinical practice um Mm. and I do wonder sometimes whether we talk such a lot about going or diversifying or something that I would hate for anyone who just stayed in clinical practice and did that to feel it, you know, to feel like they weren't fulfilling their potential, you know? Well, so I, I, I actually, I, that's really interesting. Like I, I do want to pick on up. I do want to pick up on that because those people who have done exactly that, who have done the job, that they train to do and continue to do that job in first opinion or general practice, whatever, whatever the right thing to say is, they are always like, I, I always feel like, oh, I'm just, I just did, or I'm just, oh, sorry, I'm just a, 
I mean, I just do this. I was speaking to a vet that lives locally to me and she's an amazing woman and she has worked in general practice all of her life and she's been qualified, I think, for 25 years. And she was like, oh, and we were doing a reunion and I was messaging the WhatsApp group and she was like, and I I had to say, well, I'm just still squeezing anal glands. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, actually you but that was is that not the job you went to is that you know that's what we ultimately trained all of us initially to be general practitioners regardless of everything else and we shouldn't be yeah why are people apologetic of that why are we going oh sorry I'm just what I mean that's mad right yeah this is this is a job uh, that we should be incredibly proud of and we are phenomenally skilled and I have to you know I now sort of deliberately take a bit of time out every day to kind of try to remind myself of that it's not like I've got it set on my phone or anything and I'm not into sort of like mumbo jumbo like my you know I'm I'm a very very sort of cynical and straight down the line person so you know you know but I mean I'm not into all this positive shit <laughs> exactly that exactly that I'm naturally a very natural cynic but I think sometimes you do have to take a step back and say you know what today I have counseled somebody through end of life care I've looked down a microscope and I've diagnosed ear ear problems I've taken out some teeth and stitched up some gums I've done a I've done a surgery like an actual surgery up to my elbows in something's abdomen I've given out behavioral advice and you know and all of those things and I've read a bunch of blood results and more or less understood them you know and I think that that range of skills in the first opinion practitioner is phenomenal but I also think that's sometimes where our anxieties come from, because you are always very aware that there's somebody better at everything that you do. There's somebody better at you at it. You know, I watch I look at referral dentists extracting teeth on Instagram and I think, oh, my, I don't do that. Or I ring up IDEX to talk to them about some blood results and they come out. It happened to me today. They've come out with some insights that I'm like, wow, I ne- that never even crossed my mind that that could be a thing. So we do a damn good job and we are really super good at what we do. I think this fact that there's always somebody better never really leaves our heads. Also, often it doesn't leave mine. And I just, yeah, despite not being into all that positive rubbish, I do sometimes have to take a step back and say, you know, I did a good, I, I did a good job today. And, and you know, being a little bit good at a lot of things is pretty cool. It is very cool. So if you were to give one piece of advice to those listening, um, what piece of advice would that be? You are better than you think you are. <laughs> Is that quite prof- I'm not very good at profoundity. No, not profoundities. I think that's spot on. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, it has been a pleasure. And um, yeah, we really appreciate the, uh, the fact that you've taken the time to chat. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, in our clinical segment today, we're going to have a chat about some of the um, diagnostic tools that we are able to use to diagnose hypothyroidism. And I, as I touched on last time, I think the absolute 100% thing that is most important for us to do is to not test for hypothyroidism unless we are convinced from a clinical point of view that the patient has hypothyroidism do not you know i think there's a real problem 
with including T4, total T4 in kind of screening panels for dogs because T4 can be affected by so many different non-thyroidal diseases that it's a really, really bad thing to just randomly screen for. So number one thing to do is if you've got a sick patient, then you've got to be ruling out and dealing with all the non-thyroidal stuff first and then being convinced from a clinical science point of view that your patient actually does have hypothyroidism. And this goes for a lot of the endocrinopathies, maybe apart from, you know, diabetes. You know, you want to be treating that pretty quickly. But, you know, hypothyroidism and hyperadrenocorticism, these are not diagnoses that you need to make today. You can make them tomorrow or maybe even the next day. So, you know, don't be rushing to make a diagnosis in these cases. So, a good starting point is full biochemistry and hematology. That's hardly ever going to be the wrong thing to do in very many patients, but certainly not patients with um, hypothyroidism. Um, generally speaking, um, Many of these patients will have, for instance, mild anemias. So up to 44% of hypothyroid dogs will have a mild anemia. This is usually a mild non-regenerative anemia, which is normochromic and normocytic. And that the reason for that is, is the fact that we know that thyroid hormones have an effect on red cell production. A little bit of an increase in white blood cells might be normal, um, uh, a little bit of a, a an increase in platelet count, but really very non-specific things. Um, and I suppose, so So when is it useful to see a mild non-regenerative anemia? I mean, it's pretty non-specific and we can see it with lots and lots of different things. The only time I think it maybe is useful is, for instance, if you've got a patient where you're not sure whether they've got hypothyroidism or maybe Cushing's and there can be some crossover with the, the clinical signs there it's much less likely for a Cushingoid dog to have a mild non-regenerative anemia usually they're actually a little bit kind of hemoconcentrated because they're chronically dehydrated but yeah so uh, that might be helpful from a biochemistry point of view the vast majority of hypothyroid dogs are hypercholesterolemic so 75%. And actually if I speak to people and they're not sure they're you know we're thinking about thyroid testing but we're not that convinced clinically then actually one of the first things I'll ask is what's the hematology biochemistry is there a hyper hypertriglyceride um hypercholesterolemia because if they've got a patient with a low index of suspicion and there's no increase in cholesterol and maybe I'm even less convinced that the patient is hypothyroid. Triglycerides are often up as well. Um, uh, and and things like um, mild increases in, in some liver enzymes, such as ALP, again, very nonspecific. But usually we're not getting uh, significant increases in other liver enzymes like ALT. Um, so if, if you're seeing that, then I would be maybe thinking you could be dealing something, you know, dealing with something slightly uh, more than just thyroid um, disease. Then we come on to testing specifically thyroid hormones and really we're talking about usually uh, total T4 and TSH. So um, th uh, T4 thyroid hormone and TSH thyroid stimulating hormone. Thyroid hormones will be affected by age, uh, by breed, by gender, by neutrostatus and most fundamentally by non-thyroidal factors. So 
other diseases in the body, regardless of what they are, are going to potentially depress thyroid hormones. And we have to always be aware of that. The breach thing can be important. And, 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 and funnily enough, lo and behold, the greyhound does things differently. We know that greyhounds have a completely different rule book when it comes to just everything. And so with thyroid hormones, they also have very, very low thyroid, sometimes unreadably low levels of thyroid hormones. So you have to take that into consideration when you're assessing patients of, of certain breeds. Other breeds to be aware of are Basenjis, Salukis, uh, Whippets, uh, Deerhounds. Um, those breeds can also have low thyroid hormone levels. So like I said, you know, there are multiple different thyroid um, hormones. Um, we typically, though, are still uh, assessing total T4 and TSH in most cases as a kind of first uh, first line. Um, we know that total T4, though, will be affected by non-thyroidal factors. Um TSH and free T4 are less affected, but it doesn't mean that we therefore should be doing free T4 in every single case. And, and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about, about that. There are multiple drugs that will affect thyroid hormone and usually reduce thyroid hormone levels. And notably, glucocorticoids, phenobarbital, uh, aspirin, carprofen, and sulfonamide-containing antibiotics. So all of those things are going to lower your thyroid hormone levels so really important when you're um, assessing uh, cases that you think are also hypothyroid so total t4 on its own uh, i don't know if it is that helpful so you know a single total t4 on its own as a diagnostic tool for hypothyroidism not particularly um, uh, sensitive way of diagnosing hypothyroidism. And so never should you start a patient on thyroid medication um, based on a single total T4 alone. There's, there's two sides of that. Not only do we see sort of non-thyroidal factors lowering total T4 in cases that are not actually hypothyroid, on the flip side, you you also, if you do a total T4 on its own and it's normal, that actually can't 100% rule hypothyroidism out either. And that might have been helpful. You know, you could say, well, we know it's for falsely lowered, but hold on, if it's normal, then we can probably say that patient isn't hypothyroid. But actually, that's not completely true because... Um, thyroglobulin autoantibodies can falsely increase total T4. So it can also be falsely increased. And we know that thyroglobulin autoantibodies will be positive in some cases of hypothyroidism. So I think that's the thing that we also forget. There can also be false in increases. Free T4, usually measured by equilibrium dialysis, is less affected by external factors um, and will be low in most dogs with hypothyroidism. But for me, that's a, a tier two test. We still have good diagnostic sensitivity um, with 
the combination of T, total T4 and TSH, but I would so I would still be reserving T, uh, free T4 for for only very specific cases. So we men mentioned TSH. So if free um, if total T4 is typically low in hypothyroid patients, TSH should be high, but not all will be, and again. Sadly, we do not live in a perfect world. So, as a, a, a number one screening test for hypothyroidism, not screening, diagnostic test for hypothyroidism, after you've done your hematology biochemistry, I would submit T4, total T4 and TSH. And in an ideal world, which we do not live in, the total T4 would be low and the TSH would be high. The TSH is not always high. In about 30% of hypothyroid dogs, it will be uh, normal. Um, and, and so, again, uh, we cannot rely 100% on that TSH to give us our diagnosis. So, if the combination of T4 and TSH does not give you the diagnosis of hypothyroidism in a patient where you have a high clinical suspicion of disease, and that's key, I would only pursue more diagnostics if you truly had a high index of suspicion, then I would maybe go on and measure free T4 and thyroglobulin autoantibodies. So they can be additional uh, parts of a thyroid panel that may then uh, be helpful. And the reason those two things would be helpful uh, would be, say you had a um, you know, a, a total T4 that was surprisingly normal, then having positive th thyroglobulin autoantibodies would be a reason that that had been falsely elevated. Um, and then in a case, again, where you had um, high clinical suspicion, then the free T4 uh, may be more supportive and less affected by external factors. So in summary, the use of total T4 and TSH offers the most cost-effective and widely available combination for kind of a good first diagnostic step. Um, free T4 can be reserved for dogs um, whose total T4 is um, likely to be affected by concurrent illness or drug therapies that you're not able to uh, remove. And then the measurement of thyroglobulin autoantibody um, can act as a kind of screen for um, uh, the potential influence of the thyroglobulin autoantibody. And a good example of that would maybe be false elevations in, um, in, in total T4. So, um, overall, um, uh, you know, I, I think that gives us plenty of options for diagnosis of hypothyroidism I think the key thing that we should do is only test in cases where we have compatible clinical signs and to be honest with you really most of the time that blood work is going to get us our diagnosis we're not typically moving on and doing imaging of any glands or anything like that that tends not to be that helpful so actually that in a nutshell should get us the diagnosis that we need Okay, so we'll, we'll finish up next time just by talking about some treatment options. Um, thanks so much for your attention today and I hope that was helpful in some way.
Massive thank you again to Kat for chatting today. We really enjoyed your conversation. Massive thank you to you all for listening as always. It's it's um, so humbling that you turn up and um, support us in this way. We really, truly appreciate that. To learn more about VTX and what we do, please head over to um, our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. And if there's any feedback you have for the podcast or or any guests that you would like us to feature, then please do uh, drop me an email, which I'll pop in the show notes. Massive thank you again, and I'll see you next week.